Thank you, uh, worship team, for helping turn our attention to the Lord, and we trust that our hearts uh, will be encouraged in Him and in His Word today. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 22, so I do hope you have your Bible out and ready or your device open and ready. Uh, We're going to focus on verses 24 to 27, but I want us to catch the context of these verses. So we'll start reading this morning in verse 14, Luke 22, verse 14, and we'll read through to the end of verse 27. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. God, we pray for the power of your spirit to uh, use the power of your word. Open our eyes today. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to be transformed. For the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. A very simple message today as we focus on verses 24 to 27. First of all, we're going to find a crazy dispute. Then we're going to find Jesus in his answer to the disciples in this argument they were having. First, he is going to address worldly greatness and power. And then he's going to explain and teach them about kingdom greatness and power, as in the kingdom of God. And this is the lesson I want us to take away this morning, and that is this, that God assigns greatness to those who practice smallness. God assigns greatness to those who practice smallness. But let's go back to verse 24 and look at what I'm going to suggest is one of the dumbest, sorry parents if that's a word I shouldn't use, but I can't help it, this has got to be one of the dumbest arguments of all time. Now, we've all been in dumb arguments. I was trying to remember a few that I've been in. Uh, Some of us have been in some pretty dumb arguments in the past year, for sure. But this has got to be the dumbest argument of all time. Why would I say that? 
the disciples are disputing and arguing among themselves as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, the thing we see right before this argument takes place, first of all, is that Jesus has announced that one of them was going to betray him. Did you see that? Verse 21, the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. So I get the impression that as they begin to question among themselves, well, who would do this? Would you, are you going to do this? I'm not going to do this. That somehow that conversation about betrayal morphed into a conversation about greatness and which of those 12 men would be the greatest. And you can imagine. I mean, one guy looks across the table and says, well, is it you? I, I could see you doing this. And that person responds by saying, what are you talking about? Do you remember who I am? Do you remember the things that I've done? Do you remember the converts that I've brought to Jesus? Jesus has just announced a betrayal, and these guys are going to begin to argue about who is the greatest. Second reason why this is the dumbest argument ever, this is taking place at the Passover meal. A precious meal, a memorial meal that the Jewish people would have once a year. It was a reminder of an event in their history, perhaps the key event in their history, when as a nation they had become slaves in Egypt, but God by His grace and power on the night of the Passover brought them out of Egypt. They had to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, and, and, and in that way God would pass by them not taking vengeance upon his own people, but taking vengeance on their uh, captors, on those who held them in slavery. It, it was a reminder of God's goodness to them, that God had made them his own special people, and yet at this meal, a meal that was meant to glorify God, these guys argued about which of them would be the greatest. Well, it wasn't just a Passover meal. Number three, we know that this is the Last Supper. And Jesus is even referencing this as he shares this cup of wine with him. He says, I'm not drinking this again until I come in the kingdom. He's been warning them about his coming death. And then he takes these emblems and he uses them to point to that death. This is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's poured out for you. Jesus in vivid imagery reminding these guys about the sacrifice He is about to make. And in the face of that, they can argue about who is the greatest. Well, there's other reasons. Number four, this is deja vu because these guys have had this same argument before. Mark 9 describes one of those arguments. Luke chapter 9 describes one of those arguments. We know one of them takes place as they walked on a road to Capernaum. We're, we're not sure if there were multiple cases of this. We know there was at least one other situation where James and John came to Jesus and said, hey, how about we sit on a throne beside you, one on the right and one on the left? And that caused the dispute. This wasn't the first time these guys had argued about who was the greatest. And of course, on those occasions, Jesus had gently but firmly shown them the folly of the argument. But it comes up again in this moment of all moments. Number five, this is the dumbest argument ever because Jesus had spent so much of his time as their teacher, as their rabbi, re reprogramming them to understand that in God's economy, in God's world, greatness is not the same as it is in the world of people. 
And, and he exposed sinful pride in them, and he challenged them to stop, stop grasping for power and authority, but learn to be like a child. Learn to be like a servant. That is what true greatness is. If you were to look up verses like greatness and servant and things like this, and the last will be first, and, and the least among you, and take the lower place... I mean, you will find so many places in the Gospels where Jesus teaches about this very issue. And these guys had spent three and a half years hearing this lesson over and over. And yet, they could still argue about which of them would be the greatest. And then finally, and most importantly, they had this argument in the presence of true greatness. They were sitting at this, reclining at this table with Jesus at the table. And they had had so many moments in these previous three and a half years where Jesus had absolutely shocked them and awed them and silenced them by His power. He'd given Peter this miraculous catch of fish and Peter probably on top of mounds of fish. It says he gets down on his knees before Jesus and says to Him, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. They had seen Jesus silence the religious authorities and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They'd seen people come and try and trick Him with difficult questions and they would walk away without a word. But now in the presence of greatness, these guys have so much to say. Remember when three of them, Peter, James, and John, got to see the transfiguration of Jesus and Peter always seemed to have to say something, but he didn't know what to say, and so he blurts out some stuff. And then the voice of God silences Peter and says, this is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. I've been in seminars with people that I deem to be very wise and have lots to offer uh, in terms of teaching me something and find that I'm surrounded by people that want to talk and want to share their wisdom. And I just, I just want to could you all just be quiet? Let's listen to this person. Let's learn from them. And in the presence of true greatness, these 12 disciples could argue about which of them was the greatest. This has got to be the dumbest argument ever. And yet, as we sit and look at this story and pass judgment upon these guys, we expose ourselves for being exactly the same. Because as we judge them and criticize them as I've been doing, we lift ourselves up above them and say, I know better than you. This week, Francis Chan released a video called Impossible Unity, if you want to find it. Check it out later. It's a simple video where he laments the disunity in the church of God. And he talks about how in the Bible when people saw God or when they saw Jesus for who He really was, they were completely silenced. And yet here we are today as the people of God full of arguments, full of opinions, spouting off with all kinds of words and the result is the splitting of the church and the disunity of the church and an embarrassment to the world. Francis Chan says, maybe we just need to stop and look at God and be silenced.
Well, Jesus in his grace, I don't know what I would have done if I was Jesus. Maybe I would have walked out on these guys. Maybe I would have rebuked them harshly. But he's going to take this, as he always did, as a moment to teach them. But he's going to begin by teaching them about worldly greatness. He's going to remind them, this is the way the world views greatness. Notice what he says, verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. I see four things in this verse that describe worldly greatness to us. The first one you see there, mastery. He says, kings of the earth, they lord it over. They have position over others. But number two is superiority. Notice it's lording it over them. It's recognizing or having this idea that I am above. You're below me. You're beneath me. Then he says how these rulers exercise authority. The idea here is control. I can control others. I can make you do what I want. And then he says they call themselves benefactors. This is the idea of celebrity. Now a benefactor was like a a philanthropist. Someone who gave to charity and was kind of famous for giving these gifts. I I sometimes have a knot in my stomach when I see news reports of some famous person. You know, a hurricane comes through the U.S. and uh, so-and-so famous celebrity is donating $2 million. And it's a news headline. How does that become a news headline? Only one way. And that is that I'll give you this money if you make sure people know. This is greatness in the world. And actually, if you notice, it's these great people, these people with power who name themselves. Did you see that, verse 25? They name themselves benefactors. They give themselves status. This is self-promotion. This is fancy titles. And when it comes to being a benefactor, do you see the, the condescension here? Again, the superior, superiority. Ah, I'm this person with all this money and all this status and all this power and I'm going to give for the sake of you small people. That's worldly greatness. Now I know what we do with this. It's kind of like we've done when we looked at that dumb argument. We, we feel like, well, that's, I wouldn't do that. And we look at this list and we feel like that's not my problem. Maybe we feel relieved. Because most of us can say, I don't have position. I don't have status. I don't have a title. I don't have control over others. So thankfully, I'm not like this. But what we have to stop and realize is that the opposite of this worldly greatness, and we're not going to go there yet, but in a moment we're going to look at kingdom greatness. The opposite of worldly greatness is kingdom greatness. It's the very thing that Jesus is going to teach them. The idea that to be great in God's eyes is to be small and to be a servant and to make yourself a slave and to to be the least. In other words, if we can't examine our lives and identify that we we are selfless, self-giving, self-denying people, if we can't look at our life and see that there is a pattern of, of this sacrifice for the good of God and others, 
then the reality is that these four attributes are part of our lives. They do have control over us. Now, these play out in subtle ways, of course. We know better than to be overtly, uh, to have this overt worldly pride. But what about selfishness? We all, we all struggle with selfishness. I sometimes am amused to think even in our churches how this plays out. Church parking lots fill from the front to the back, don't they? Every time. They fill from the front to the back. Because the first people come in, not everyone, but generally the first people come in, ah, there's, there's, a, there's a spot right by the door, I'll take that one. Church auditoriums fill from the back to the front. Because we want that safe place, that, that place of comfort. We don't want to sit in the front row. And then during COVID, we have this dynamic where we can have a certain number of people in the auditorium, but then some need to go to the gym and maybe some upstairs. And, and of course, we all offer to take that other place. We'll, we'll, we'll go to the gym. We'll go upstairs. Selfishness is a real issue for all of us and certainly true of me. Pride. I think of some of the struggles that I've gone through in my own life, struggles that God has used to humble me, and yet my pride comes again and again. And every time there's a victory, and every time it seems that I've done something well, and every time I feel strong and I feel like I've accomplished something, my pride rears up again and again. How about my willingness to serve? An announcement's made at church, so-and-so needs help with a move, or, or there's some uh, need in the Sunday school, or some opportunity to serve, and we don't think much of it. We've got our, our life to live, we've got things that we want to do, and we've got our priorities, and our pastimes, and our hobbies, and the thought of sacrificially giving of my time, and serving others in the church, just doesn't occur to me. Why is that? It's because I have been duped by this worldly notion of greatness. I will not subject myself to the authority of others or to the service of others. If we're stingy, selfish with our money, what, what is that all about? It's this problem. It's this, this thirst for what's mine is mine. I've earned this. I'm going to keep this. But to be a servant would be to share and to give and to let go. Many of us struggle with materialism, not just because of things we want, which is a problem, but because of the status that a certain size of home gives us or a certain vehicle that we want to drive. And yes, even believers, we can fall prey to this materialism. We complain. This past year has given many of us all kinds of reasons to complain against those who are in authority over us. And as we complain, what we're demonstrating is that we know better. And even though they might hold the position above me, the truth is that in my wisdom, I'm above them. I know better. If only I was in charge. And then we have social media, 
which many of us have used as our pulpit. It's our power play. It's our opportunity to voice our thoughts and to make sure people know that we're right and anyone who thinks differently is so wrong. And some of us are using social media as a form of superiority and mastery and control. And we troll and we say terrible things to other people on the internet. We think it's okay, we're just expressing our opinion, but no, what we're expressing is that we believe in worldly greatness. That's what we long for, that's what we're embracing. And Jesus says, not so. And he begins to teach the disciples as he had so many times about kingdom greatness. Verse 26, look how he begins. You are not to be like that. Or some versions, not so among you. Gracious but firm. This is not acceptable. This is not the way we do it in the kingdom of God. And so the first point we need to understand is that to be great in the kingdom of God means that we reject worldly greatness. We reject, we re- reject selfishness. We reject pride. We reject boasting. We, we reject uh, self-promotion. We re- re- reject the, these natural tendencies to be superior to place ourselves above others. We reject the notion that I, I shouldn't have to serve in that way. Somebody else can do that. We reject that. That's not who we are anymore. We live by new values, new truths. Jesus goes on to say, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. What is Jesus saying here? He's acknowledging that even within the family of God in the body of believers, there are some who are seen to have greater status, perhaps based on uh, their personality or based on the gifts that God has given them or the responsibilities that they've been given within the church. Notice Jesus isn't, uh, he isn't rejecting the idea of authority. He's acknowledging here that there will be some who rule. There will be some who have to take authority. Without that in any culture, It's chaos. There always has to be authority. There always has to be those who rule. But what does he say? In God's kingdom, this is servant leadership. It's not the way the world rules. It's not lording it over people. In fact, Peter said this to church elders, that they're not to lord it over the congregation, but they're to be servants. They're to be examples to the flock. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is even if you find yourself in a place of leadership or prominence in some way within the kingdom of God, you will serve. You don't promote yourself. You don't expect privileges from others. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You look for ways to grant privilege and honor and service to other people. Jesus says in verse 27, who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Now he's appealing here, of course, to the worldly idea of greatness. He says, is it not the one who's at the table? 
in the world's eyes, that's the way it works. If you're seated at the table, if someone's serving you, then you're greater than the person who's serving you. And what does Jesus say in conclusion? I am among you as one who serves. I didn't mention it earlier, but one of the reasons this, is, this was the dumbest argument in all of history is that Jesus, before the meal even began, according to John's Gospel, took off his outer clothing and took a basin and a towel and went man to man and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. That, in his culture, was the place of the lowest slave, the lowest servant, the one with the least status in the household would wash the feet of the guests. And Jesus, and I can almost imagine as they began to recline around the table and the aroma of those dirty, sweaty feet. It's always bad to have poor aromas when you're trying to eat something. And nobody else was offering, no one else was willing to wash the feet, even of the man beside him, but Jesus, in demonstrating true greatness, stooped down and washed the feet of his disciples. Yeah, even Judas. Even Peter, who was soon to betray him, Jesus could say, I'm among you as one who serves. And what we find in this is what I'm going to call assigned greatness. In the kingdom of God, greatness is not something we grasp for or claim or strive for. Greatness in the kingdom of God is something that is assigned by God. And that's where we come to our key lesson for this morning. God assigns greatness to those who practice smallness. He assigns greatness to those who practice smallness. Let me show you a couple of scriptures where this is true. First of all, for Jesus himself. Philippians 2, this tremendous passage that describes how Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. I mean, Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He could have come to earth announcing his greatness, claiming his greatness, insisting that people recognize his greatness, and he did the opposite. He lowered himself again and again. He served. He touched Those who were sick, he stopped and spoke to those who were begging. He healed the blind. It was only God who would assign greatness. And we see in the pattern of Jesus that greatness was assigned to him by God, even though he already, Philippians 2 earlier says, it wasn't robbery for him to claim equality with God. But he chose to allow God the Father to be the one who would assign greatness, but only after he had given everything to be the servant of the people. This is the pattern. This is how it works in the kingdom of God. God assigns greatness even for Jesus. He assigns greatness to those who practice smallness. Mark 10 is the next scripture. This is that story where James and John asked to sit at the right and the left of Jesus in his kingdom. He says, it's not for me to grant, 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. What's he saying? It's my Father who will decide who sits on my right or my left. It's my Father who will grant that honor, that glory, that authority, that greatness. This is the pattern we see all through the New Testament in the teaching of Jesus, in the teaching of the apostles, where they they warn us and they encourage us and they tell us that the way that we live now is going to have an impact on the glory that we receive in heaven. Now, if if we're saved, we're all going to be glorified. We're all going to experience that final aspect of salvation where we're given glorified bodies and we get to spend eternity in the presence of Jesus. And yet it is so clear from the teaching of Jesus, the stories of of those talents. Remember the, uh, the servants who were given money to invest by their master and Some invested well and some invested poorly. And the ones who invested well were given more. Greatness is assigned by God to those who serve, who practice smallness. This is greatness in the kingdom of God. This is an interesting reality because we're we're human beings here and even though many of us, I trust, have come to faith in Christ and we've been reborn and we have this new birth, this new life, we're being transformed into this new mindset. And yet we still struggle, don't we? I do. With this thirst for greatness, this pride, this hunger for the praise of people. But God's intention is to transform us. And isn't it interesting that he actually appeals to us in terms of greatness? He knows that we have this natural hunger and longing to be great. And so he shows us that greatness can be achieved. You can have it. It can be assigned to you. And in this way, the playing field is level. It doesn't matter what your spiritual gifts are, your personality, uh, your resources, your wealth, your prominence in the church. or in the, None of that matters. What matters is Will you give yourself up as a servant of God and others? And if you are willing to do that, God offers you greatness. God promises you crowns and glory in response to your choice to be small and to serve. I wonder if we have chosen kingdom greatness. Or if we have been duped into believing that some of what we think and some of what we do is just normal, and yet it's been influenced by worldly patterns and worldly philosophies of greatness and pride and power, Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. And so if we choose kingdom greatness, our ultimate resource is Jesus himself. These three things on the screen now. If we choose kingdom greatness, I urge us all to to recognize that greatness is assigned by God to those who practice smallness. Here's the three things we need. Number one, we need the example of Jesus. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus said in John 13 after he washed the feet of the disciples. He said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, surely you can do this for one another. Follow the example of Jesus. Look at it and see the beauty of it. 
And if you can't do that, if you can't see the beauty of it, this is where we pray and we say, God, give me a vision for true greatness in the kingdom of God. Help me to see the beauty of serving, of giving of myself, of laying myself down. And of course, the way we find the beauty in that is just to look at Jesus and read the stories again and again and see Him stop by the road to speak to the beggar and, and, and see Him uh, caring for people who by the world's standards had no status, no power, Number two, we obviously need this. We need salvation in Jesus. I mean, Jesus, of course, we understand that He is our Savior from sin and He's the one who forgives us and He's the one who places His righteousness upon us so that God can declare us righteous so that we can be His child. And yet one of the great realities of salvation is that we need Jesus to save us from ourselves. That ugly pride, that selfishness, that self-will, that self-reliance, that longing for status, that desire to promote myself. Salvation rescues us from this. And of course, number three, salvation ultimately is meant to produce, will produce, this transformation. Where the ultimate goal of God in rescuing, uh, rescuing His people is that ultimately we would end up looking like Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's one of the reasons that we're called to be His disciples. He's the rabbi, He's the master. The idea is that we would know what He knows and we'd live like He lives. God wants us to look like Jesus. In fact, the, the, the way that we could be most glorious and most beautiful to God is that we would look like Jesus in our character, in our behavior, in our choices. This is the, the goal of salvation. Romans 8.29 says that we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son, Jesus. And then 1 John 3, where wonderful verses that talk about what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And then it goes on to talk about how when we see Him, we will be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. It's a transformation, it's a process that's only going to be completed when we stand in His actual presence, but it's meant to be in full effect now. The transformation should be happening now. God is rooting pride out of our lives now. God is teaching us to be servants now. And we need Jesus to do this work. Yeah, there's choice involved. We, we have to choose this. But ultimately, we cannot create this in ourselves on our own. Only the gospel of Jesus can produce this transformation in us. This is our opportunity to glorify God, to be like Jesus. Choose kingdom greatness. 